Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, your regular guide sharing tools and expertise to build a life full of positivity and possibility. Here's your host, Russell Thackeray. So today I'm talking to Larry Ward. Now, Larry is a sort of colleague of mine, in a sense, in, in that he works in the resilience field, but is based in America. We've not met before, um, but I know that actually many of the things he's going to talk to us about today are going to be things that hopefully are of great interest. There'll be skills, tips, tools, techniques, all sorts of different things, approaches. And um, Larry, I think, is from having talked to him a little, is someone who's got a really interesting perspective on the world. So, first of all... Larry, hi, how are you? Good, Russell. Thank you for this opportunity. Pleasure. Now, where do I find you today? I'm in, I'm in, a, very, I'm in a very dark and dismal Southampton in the UK. I think you're somewhere more glamorous, I believe. Uh, no, actually, I'm almost in a dark and dismal island off the coast of Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> that just very great. cloudy today. Very cloudy today. Is it really? Is it really? Yeah. I have very happy memories of being in Seattle. So, uh, yeah, but still lovely. Yeah, I'm but, sure. But still lovely, yeah. Beautiful air, beautiful environment. Yes, it is. Anyway, Larry, it's a great pleasure to talk to you. I'm looking forward to this very much. Good to meet colleagues who are in, in, in exactly our field in different countries. So if you had to introduce yourself or explain what you did to someone, what would you, who would you say you were? What would you say you do? Um... First, I would simply say is, I'm Larry Ward. I have a Ph.D. in religious studies uh, with an emphasis uh, on uh, Buddhist meditation and neuroscience. I also have a bachelor degree in psychology and organizational behavior. So I work part of the time in leading retreats and days of retreat and longer retreats for people who are interested in the path of mindfulness and Buddhist studies. And then secondly, um, and concurrently, I work with selected clients who are in uh, corporate settings and family businesses and larger systems on how to be resilient in the times in which we live. Fantastic. Fantastic. I love the way you can incorporate both aspects into each other. So um, that will be interesting in terms of our conversation. Tell me, tell me about um, how you got into this work in the first place. Where, 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 was, where did it all start for you? Well, hmm. it all started when I joined the faculty of an organization called the Ecumenical Institute in Chicago. Right. And it was a organization concerned with the, in America context, the renewal of the church. Yeah. Yeah. And part of what we meant by that was the, the renewal of the church's own theology or way of thinking about itself and the cosmos and the world. And it also meant that we were concerned with helping local churches, local congregations uh, develop skills so that they could be a, 
uh, true service to their local communities where they look, where they resided. Right. So that uh, led me to India, where I lived for two years, working in Calcutta and working in rural villages throughout different places in India, training village leaders and methods of community development. And so I was first introduced to Buddhism in an experiential way while I lived in India, even though I had studied it as a part of our academy faculty uh, and looking at world religions and things like that. So that set me off on that tra trajectory. Yeah. Uh, and then after spending 20 years working with that organization in communities and on the faculty of the academy and things like that, I decided to go back to school because I realized that organizational change or community change is dependent on individual change. Right. And the other way around is true too, that individual change, I noticed individuals cannot change any more than their context will allow them mm, good. Yeah, or, or support them. So that led me to see that I, my work is in both areas, working with individuals and working with various forms of collectives, whether that's businesses or communities. Fascinating. And so you definitely see a link between the, um, the community work and the organizational work. Well, yeah, even that, uh, you know, some of the recent research going on neurologically is that we are, you know, our brain is designed to be social. Yeah. Uh, and because simply of that evolutionary biological fact, there's no escape from the influence of individuals on collectives or the other way around. Yes, I think um, people often under underestimate the um, the organizational climate or the organizational context in which they work and the effect that has on them as an individual, don't, don't they? People seem to think that they are individuals who stand up on their own two feet and are not affected by the external world, but it's it's a slightly naive view, I think. Would you agree? It's a very it's a very naive view, both in terms of present time and historical slash cultural slash family conditioning. Yes. I mean, some of the very, very earliest experiments, you know. This yeah, as you mentioned, our own evolutionary history, so. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, so okay then, so talk to me about, um, well, it'd be good interesting to share some ideas about what you believe resilience to be. How, how do you define it? What do you think it's about? I, I think there are different levels to resilience. Uh, first, there's the kind of resilience in which you are able to cope yeah. with what's happening in the moment. Uh, there's the kind of resilience that Sigmund Freud, I understand, referred to as good enough to go back to work. Yeah. Um, and then there's the kind of resilience that is healing resilience, that heals uh our emotional and cognitive confusion. And then there's the kind the level of resilience that's the embodiment of it that has to do with the quality of presence we bring into our, our world. Right. And do you think any person can um, inhabit each of those four levels? In other words, can they learn to go between levels? Yes, people can learn. 
This is my great hope. <laughs> yeah, I'm mine. <laughs> and that hope is based on my experience. Yes. So if we if we unpack this idea then, because I, I like the, your way of thinking about this, how do people find themselves going from a normal, say, happy, active life and suddenly find themselves down at the bottom where they're unable to cope? You know, they're not even at that level or well, level one. It, you know, it's... Um, we human beings are very complex creatures, as you know. So, you know, it can it can be as simple as someone yelling at you in traffic, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that can trigger a memory that you have not fully processed how to emotionally deal with. Right. Uh, you know, it can be something as mundane as that. Or a conflict with your partner or a spouse in a moment. Uh, and by conflict, I don't mean anything bad. I just mean a difference of opinion or view. Yeah. Um, but any of our life experiences of either pleasure or displeasure can trigger and unstabilize our nervous system. Right. So... For me, learning to be more skillful in our body awareness, our somatic awareness is very, very important. I, people I, I work with, especially in the corporate world, um, I can see have some challenges in being in touch with their bodies. Okay. And therefore in touch with their emotions. So, so, t so unpack that a little bit for me. What do you mean by being in touch with their bodies? Well, every uh, an emotional experience of anger or happiness or joy or sadness um, or elevation, these are all experiences communicated to us by our body. Yes. And if we don't develop or learn how to be sensitive to the information coming from our body, we become less skillful in our ability to be resilient. I understand. Do you, do you think, um, or what's your opinion on the fact that a lot of people, when we talk about resilience, talk about people who are in some way impaired in some way. Um, you know, they're seen as the, the, wounded, the wounded bird or um, someone with a problem. And I often think that we forget the people who are strong already, the people who can do even better, the people who can, um, you know, build resilience in a very positive fashion. So it's not just about broken performance or people who have lost their ability to cope. It is about people who are, are successful already and can be more successful. What, what would you think about that? Well, I think one of the primary characteristics of human beings is our capacity for resilience. Right. Irregardless of our external circumstances, almost, um, irregardless of our physical condition. So I think it's an inherent human quality. The question is, as you have mentioned, can we learn to enhance that quality yeah. in, in ourselves and between us? Yeah. Because to me, one of the great issues in the world today is learning how to enhance resilience between us. Yeah. And, um, and and that's interesting because if you therefore say 
you're um, affected by the culture in which you're in or the community in which you're in, then it's important not to do it just on your own. It's important for everybody to, to work together in a, in a sense. Well, to figure out how to, to be willing to figure out how to work together on those things that matter. Yeah. I often think in an organizational sense, you, you, you meet people who've been sent on a training course or development around resilience, but you don't see the whole team. And then you have this problem, don't you, that one person becomes more resilient or whatever the phrase might be, but they go back to the culture or go back to that community they were in, which may, may have been where the problem is in the first place. Yeah. So do you, do you, do you, do you deal with that? Or what's your approach with that sort of thing? Well, my, my approach with that, I, I, I refer to as organizational anthropology. Right. And it is my contention that one way to look at an organization is as if it's a tribe. I see. Yes. And so that means to respect that tribe, if you're going to work with them or be a part of that experience, it's important to learn the language, learn the the customs, learn the history, and this also means you, you learn what the patterns are that you may want to continue if it's in alignment with the vision you have for the future or the patterns you need to change. Yeah. And resilience is required for both. So, so how do you link together this idea of resilience and change? Are you, are well, you, are you sort of saying that people who are more resilient are, have, have it are, are more prone to being able to change more quickly, more easily? Uh, that's true. I think that, that scientifically that could be uh, verified. Um, I, I think part of the issue is whether in our life we have decided consciously or unconsciously to stop learning. Right. So many of us, you know, our cultural orientations and conditioning is you get to a certain stage of success or development or whatever the language is, and we then just, the rest of our life is going through the motions to keep that in place. Right. That's not resilience. No. In terms of what I mean by resilience. And I, I look at resilience in three different ways of developing it and working with it. Yeah. The first skill is to learn how to develop calm in yourself. Right. This means calming, learning how to calm your body down. Yeah. And learning how to calm your mind down. Yeah. And this is a constant, <laughs> this is a practice. It certainly is. It's a life's work for some people. It's it? a life's work and a wonderful life's work because when we are able to do that, we have a chance to rediscover over and over and over our own mystery, our own depth, and our own greatness as people, yeah. as individuals, and as collectives. So would you say this skill is one of the fundamental skills upon yeah. which other things that you're going to talk about would be yeah. built? Okay. Should we, look, should we look at the three skills and maybe go back and unpack each one? So what would be the second skill? Yeah. The second like one is, so the first one is the resilience that comes from calming. Yeah. Depth relaxation, not just the relaxation response, simply that level, deeper than that. Yeah. The second area is emotional resilience. Right. And this has to do with learning the skills of working with our feelings mm -hmm. and the accompanying emotions that may arise. Yeah. 
And the third one is cognitive resilience. And this has to do with, with the stories we tell ourselves about who we are, what's happening, where we're going. And the skill is to learn how to wisely reframe. Otherwise, we can get caught holding on to a previous frame that no longer applies to our real situation. I guess. I understand. So can we go back to skill number one? Um, sure. I'm, a, I'm assuming, and forgive me if I'm jumping the gun here, that you're talking about not just meditation, but the, uh, more deeper mindfulness. Uh, yes, I'm talking about both. Right. Um, because... Um, meditation, as you know, also has levels of awareness that can be developed. Um, and that, those levels of development nourish the ability to be more mindful. I see, I see. They, they actually empower our, the networks in our brain that allow us to pay attention. Yeah, yeah. And that skill of enhancing our ability to pay attention is how we're able to recognize what's happening with our body, what's happening with our emotion, and what's happening in our cognition. Right. But if we're not calm enough, it's like trying to be clear in a thunderstorm see. and see your directions. So if we're not calm enough to where the, you know things die down inside of us, slow down just a little bit, we then we can start to have peaks of clarity of what's actually going on with us emotionally. Have we been triggered? Have we been... I, I was working at a company once um, assisting the human resource department, doing some consultative work, and they had an employee who seemed to always hire the same person. I see. This, this was kind of the same type of person. Yeah. And uh, so after some investigation and looking at all the data and, you know, talking with this person, I, he realized he kept hiring his high school girlfriend. Oh, really? All I'm saying is that what I'm talking about is ordinary human experience. The question is, how do we deal with it? Yes. With a resilient means. Yes. Instead of just being habituated. So that's it's the um, it's we, we like to talk about self awareness, but also that self management piece. It's not yeah, just knowing; it's knowing what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's I think because a lot of practitioners talk about self awareness as if it's the the goal, but it isn't actually. Is it? It's the regulation piece that comes from self management. I think, isn't it? I mean, it's the first step. Yeah. Yeah, awareness is the first step. So, um, just to just to talk about the mindfulness thing. So, uh, on your website, I was listening to the fact that you put some um, a number of guided meditations, and yes. um, which I thought were really great. But I was very interested to see the fact that you use five minute guided meditations. Yes, and um, I, I'm a big fan of learning to meditate from even a minute up. And, yeah, uh, is is that something that you advocate for people who are learning this idea? Do you start with a small number of minutes and then work up, or what? What would be your recommendation for people who are maybe new to the idea of meditation, maybe somewhat suspicious of it? Well, the yes. Yeah, so the the context for the five minute meditations, I was asked to create these for people's work life. Yeah. 
something people could listen to, take five minutes out of the day, before work, after work, during work, at a break, um, so that people have access to basically the calming methodology. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's one part of it. The second part of it for me that's important is that it's important to get instruction. I see. I, you know, I could, besides having kind of an academic orientation, which I've kind of always had, to me I've also had an orientation of learning how to learn something. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not sustainable. Mm. That's what I've seen around the world. Uh, with people who get introduced to meditation but don't get enough instruction to feel comfortable to continue it. Yes, because it is a skill, isn't it? And people do appreciate that. Yeah. And people can learn it, but things can come up during meditation. Emotional things, ideas, thoughts, and memories that if you don't have adequate, at least some instruction, it will block your progress. Yes. Yes, I think that's interesting, um, and, it, and it must be it must be um, somewhat gratifying to hear some of the Buddhist ideas that now are accepted because they're called mindfulness, but which, yeah. are just, which is just a fundamental part of Buddhist, for example, meditation practice for hundreds and thousands, well, certainly hundreds of years. It is right. quite interesting how that Eastern philosophy has sort of worked its way into the Western culture. Well, yes, and it's interesting, yes and no, because uh, in terms of some of the Western concepts of democracy and capitalism, have also worked their way east. I see, true. Right? So if we think globally about the movement of techniques and abilities and skills, ancient and or modern, they're like all over, moving all around the planet all the time now. Unless you're really isolated. Yeah. Okay. And the internet is changing that, of course. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, your your um, your meditations on your website are a global offering, aren't they? That's the exactly. Thing. Yeah, that's that's the, that's the exciting thing about the internet. The, um, so you've talked a little about mindfulness, and, and that's interesting. And and you've talked about the fact that you need to be guided and trained to, to do this more um, um, skillfully. But it's okay to start with something like a one-minute or two- or five-minute meditation just to, to begin to experience it. Yes, because whatever you're going to learn, you have to start. Yeah. And you have to start. You don't have to, but research shows you learn best if you start slow. Yeah. And you learn best if you have some instruction. To me, my example is uh, golf. I play golf, and uh, whenever I can, which is not too often at the moment. But anyway, I decided that I needed to. I was working with a corporation. I got invited to this big golf tournament, and I was on the CEO's team. And I'd never played, so I thought, "Oh my God, I better take some lessons." <laughs> so, so I, I don't embarrass myself or the team I'm on, or hit somebody with the golf ball and get sued. So anyway. I decided that it was important to get a teacher, and so I finally found a teacher, but I did some research and discovered if a million people start playing golf every year, at the end of the next year, more than half of them have quit. Yeah. And the number one thing they have in common is they did not have any instruction. Yes. 
So for me, mindfulness practice is like that because, it's, yes, it's about self-awareness. Yes, it's about being skillful in how you manage yourself, your emotions, and your mind. Uh, and part of that has to do with the vividness of your experience that becomes possible in a state of mindfulness. Yes. And, and, and people seem to give up very quickly if they don't see transformative results within almost the first time they try it. I think, yeah. I think people, that, people going in and expecting it to be the magic bullet. But it yeah, isn't that's, really you know, that's because partially we're conditioned for speed. Yeah. Our expectations are always like way out ahead of the situation we're in. And But if people are introduced to mindfulness meditation skillfully and carefully, they can experience immediately some joy and some relief. Yes. In terms of their their resilience, yeah. I mean, I've I've seen people who've um, at a very practical level who've just learned some of the very most basic and simple techniques, being able to deal with stress and anxiety, and and at the simplest level, just get a good night's sleep. Exactly. And and sometimes people don't understand that that's a very important benefit in terms of your resilience, because if you want sleeping. If you're more prone to being affected by stress and anxiety, that's that's going to affect your whole way of looking at the world. It sure is. So you know, every night I do a meditation uh, to take myself to sleep, and every morning I do one when I wake up. Yeah. And they don't have to be long to be effective, but I have a pretty good idea of what I'm doing. <laughs> Yes, and you, and you can sort of top up during the day. And, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And I know how to do it throughout the day when I'm walking in the yard or listening to birds or yeah. watching deer eat grass or whatever. I'm, I'm able to bring that skill into my interaction with my clients and my, my family, etc. Yeah, and I think people, in a working level, I mean, I, I, I see a benefit in terms of being able to be able to really focus my mind on something. So if I'm if I'm dealing with a problem, mindfulness helps me really focus on that problem. If I'm dealing with an individual who's got issues or needs you know to be listened to or given care and consideration, mindfulness allows you to still yourself in your mind. So you you're actually learning a very good leadership skill as a byproduct of learning this technique. That is really true. And some recent research of a couple of years ago suggests that People being hired now, particularly in the high-tech world, uh, that getting in the door requires your technical skill and your quote-unquote IQ. Yeah. But after you're in the door, the only way you accelerate your leadership and your movement through the company in leadership is your capacity to work with people. Absolutely. Not exactly. just numbers or uh, et cetera. So... Yes, and mindfulness is a profound way of also helping people develop their emotional intelligence. Excellent. So you talk next about emotional resilience. Are there any um, techniques that you particularly advocate here? Uh, well, the main one for me on a daily basis is awareness of my breathing patterns. Excellent. Good. Because my breathing patterns are information on what my mind and emotional life are experiencing. I see. 
Uh, and so I can, I can feel through that awareness, that mindful awareness, uh, emotions arising, thoughts arising, and then I have, I'm in a position of freedom where I can evaluate those things. And ask myself, do I want to follow this emotion? Do I want to follow that thought? Uh, what might happen if I do that in my workplace? What might happen if I do that in my relationships? I see. So, so it really creates an opportunity for clearer comprehension of what's happening. Yeah. And therefore I have freedom of choice at a whole nother level. And, and, and that's, I think you've said something extremely important there for people because making a choice about how you use emotions is, is about how to, how to understand the positive effects of having an emotion in the first place. Exactly. I think people, people almost see, well, I'm not emotional. You know, I close down my emotions. I'm very, very rational. And they lose the fact that emotions are there for a reason. They give us power. They give us energy. They give us... They give us an uplift. It's only it's only our interpretation. It's only our use of them, our lack of control of them that can can create that negative, and even and even the negatives there to to help us, to protect us, to, yes, to give us the energy the, to save ourselves, isn't it? Yeah, there's a great book. Uh, boy, I can't remember the author's name, but it's called Descartes' Error, hmm. and it's the assumption that you can make decisions without emotional influence. That's it. And we now know neurologically that's not possible if you are alive. That's right. <laughs> well, there, so, was, there was a very early experiment about a guy who had um, both hemispheres of his brain separated and he couldn't make a decision because he'd lost the emotional centers exactly. of his brain. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. But we've not been educated in general. Yeah. Most people have not been educated in the context of the conversation we're having. Yeah, exactly. And so for me, we have a major crisis in adult education, not just youth education. Yes, I agree. And I think, and I don't know what your view is on this, I think sometimes, particularly with men, because there's a sort of, you often find that women are more prone or happy to talk about emotions and feelings and such like, but there's a sort of macho-ness about man, men that they think somehow this, this makes them weak. You know, uh, and yet I, I don't know what you find is when I when I deal and engage with men, either once on a level on a training course, for example, they're bro they're just as emotionally capable as women, but they need to they need to break some of the barriers first. Yes, that's true. And you know, that's part of the conditioning yeah. we've had from you know thousands of years, yeah. and uh, continually maintained by some of our social imagery and context and expectations. Exactly. And of course, you well. Now let's not get into American politics. Let's stay with that for the moment. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so number three, you said was uh, cognitive resilience, and you talked yeah. about the process of reframing, which I'm a very keen fan of. So talk talk to me more about that. Well, this to me is both uh, reframing skill and, and not reframing in the sense of escape. No. Okay. So uh, or uh, reattribution. The, the ability to look again and uh, reattribute, reimagine what's happening. So, so could you give me an example of that? Because I think this is an extremely powerful skill. Sure. Um, I was chatting with some people recently in an organization in Seattle that were being challenged by 
a restructuring process going on in the organization. And so everyone had, in two minutes, everybody could list down what was negative about the reorganization. Yeah. But it took 10 minutes to get a list of things that were positive about it. Yes. Yeah. Now, part of this is understanding our nervous system, which is, you already mentioned this, which is designed to protect us. And so we are wired to notice what is negative first. But that is habitual. So for me, cognitive resonance is learning to know when that's what's happening with yourself. And then to learn how to put things in the framework of, well, look at all the positives connected to this. And then how do we create a story that has the integrity of honoring what's working and what's not working? So there's a tendency in organizations and societies to either, you know, be focused on how wonderful we are and what's working, et cetera, in denial of the shadow. Uh, or people tend to get caught up in their experience of the shadow and deny what the light. Yeah. And so for me, cognitive resilience is learning how to work with your mind yeah. in terms of its images, the mood it creates in you, the expectations it creates in you, and the story that you embody about what's possible for your life or your organization or your country or whatever collective environment you're in. Yes. And, and, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because I was talking to someone just today and I kept asking the person, what do they want to do? And the answer was, I don't know. And what, what do you want to be in five years' time? I don't know. What do you want to, what would you not want to be in five years' time? I don't know. And some people genuinely don't know themselves or what they want or where they want to go. And they think it's okay just to sort of drift along in the world and just take advantage of anything that pops pops along. And that's fine, but it's not training, it's not learning to learn, and it's not training yourself to be in control of your own mind. Because who are you waiting to tell you? This is the problem, isn't it? And, yeah, right. and well, the other thing, to me, there's two parts to that. There's a Korean Zen master who has a book called Only Don't Know. <laughs> right. And for him, it's his spiritual practice of not being too sure about anything. Right. right. Not, not, not being rigid. Yes. And, and many people take the experience or the idea of not knowing as a, what's the right way to describe, as, as, as a freeze state. I see. Our nervous system and fight, fight, or freeze, that, that not knowing can, if you misunderstand it, can lead you into a state of being frozen. Yes. I mean, there is something, isn't there, and, and especially, I don't know, well, I don't know is it, there is something about the need to know, and there's some, something in leadership management about like, being expected to know. Yes. And so I can see, what was the book called, Only, Only Don't Know? Only Don't Know. What he means is don't be too sure. Right. That's interesting, isn't it? Because actually, the corollary of what I've just said earlier is actually, if you're in the state of not knowing, you're in the state of having choice still, aren't you? Yeah, and a re real possibility. Hmm. But you have to have the resiliency within yourself to move toward possibility. Yes. And then reframing towards possibility 
exactly. is, is part of that. Without And sometimes the, one of the challenges we have, uh, certainly in organisational context, is this idea that um, we always just accept the first solution that comes to our minds exactly. as well, don't we? So we're always, you know, always chasing the wrong path. Yeah. We don't think deeply enough because we've not trained our minds to really get to grapple with the issues some, somewhat. One of the questions uh, I practice with myself personally and in organizations is once I know what my vision is or the direction I want to send my energy, my life force, uh, I've used this a lot in organizations and interacting with bureaucracies. You know, you go in and you're trying to meet with a banker and in a country where the banker's never been to the village where you're living and working because it's like in the rural area. And uh, one of the most effective questions I I learned was, what would it take? What would it take for you to go with me to that village? Or if we're trying to build a road in a village and not everybody agrees, you get everybody together and you talk about everything, everybody has the same information, and then the question is, okay, now what would it take for this to work? And for me, that's a question of cognitive resilience. Yes, it's very, it is a very possibility-orientated question, isn't it? Yeah, rather than being problem-driven. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. We, um, as you say, we're hardwired to solve problems. Yeah, um, we are. And what the, tro- the problem, well, and then the, the challenge then becomes is you miss the opportunities because you're so focused on the problems. And there's a school of psychology, I can't remember who talks about this, who says the more you think of problems, the more problems you have. Yes, yeah, I believe that. It's a bit like the man with the hammer and the always he sees yes, all right. these problems and nails. Yeah, yeah Angelus Arian has a great analysis of uh, human addiction, um, and you can you can Google her. She passed away a year or so ago, but uh, I, I know her personally, and she says one of the addictions we have as human beings is addiction to what's not working. Yes. And we can't seem, you know, resilience is being able to get beyond and through, not escape from what's not working. Yeah. That's a a lovely way. That's a lovely way of, um, I think, two things. One, which is summarizing what we've been talking about. And and it's it's an interesting point to pause and and think about um, you, Larry. I mean... Tell me if you if people would like to get in touch with you, see more of your work, maybe read some of the things you put together. How would people get in touch with you? Uh, people can reach me at uh, www.thelotusinstitute.org. Right, and the, and I've already mentioned the fact that you can access some of your very good. Actually, I have to say I, I was listening to them earlier. They are very good guided meditations. Oh, and, good. And, and, okay. uh, and, and not to toot your own home too much, but there are there are things which are out there which are much worse than yours, and you have, <laughs> and, you have and you have to pay for those, whereas yours are free. <laughs> so it's well, a great, thank you. It's a great way to engage with you, and um, I don't know what uh, other people think, but I, I love the sound of your voice, so I could certainly listen to that for a lot longer. Uh, Larry, that has been a, a remarkable session. I've really enjoyed it, and I think people listening in will have gained a huge amount of value, and and I hope. Uh, They'll come to your website, they'll look at your work, they'll look at your resources and perhaps, you know, reach out to you and see see if there's opportunities to do things together with you. That'd be great. Larry, thanks so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. And yeah, um, Thank you, Russell. I appreciate yeah, it too. I hope our paths cross very, again very soon. I do too. Take That'd care. be great. Take care. Okay, you too. Be well. 
Thanks for listening today. I hope we really got some value from that. I certainly enjoyed it myself. Remember, there's only other podcasts and with tools and techniques, different speakers and different resources available in this series of Resilience Unraveled, so please feel free to subscribe. Why not also drop across to Facebook and join our group, Resilience Unraveled, and join in the conversation. Also, if you wanted to whip over to iTunes and drop us a, a preview or a review, that would be fantastic. Thanks ever so much. You can get hold of us at qedod.com or at personalresilience.com where you can get hold of free ebooks, resources, some online courses, and even some coaching. But whatever happens, I look forward for you joining us on the next edition of Resilience and Unraveled.